Well, good evening. Um, welcome to this month's Bible Q&A. Um, this month we are tackling the questions that have been put in on the book of Revelation. Uh, that was what we were reading last month, so we're looking at those questions. And um, yeah, this evening, I don't know if you realize this or not, but Den and I thought what would be really good is if we gave you the questions and you gave us the answers. Is that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, um, I, I think, um, man, there, I was actually surprised that there could have been so many questions, but I think we've, I think we've got about six. Seven? Seven? Oh, okay. Seven! <gasps> Seven questions. Look at that. Wow. <laughs> um, so we, yeah, finished by 11. I, I won't lie to you, I was looking at them um, earlier on and I was thinking we could do a whole evening on each question, but um, we won't. No, we won't. Don't worry, we won't. Um, but yeah, a bit of a, an interesting one and I think hopefully a bit of a treat and probably going to leave you walking away with more questions than answers um, because what we are going to do this evening is look at the questions that you've put in but on most of them not on all of them but on most of them Den and I are going to give you two different views two different ways of understanding it two different interpretations um, and we're not going to fight are we no um, so, um, yeah, but we just, so hopefully it'll just, it'll, if nothing else, it'll be interesting for you. And I will say that the things that we're going to say, in reality, there are only two of many different ways that people look at the book of Revelation. Um, so I hope that it's informative, but I hope that it informs you in such a way that causes you to go away and to read it and to think for yourself. Um, because... When you stand before him, you won't be able to say, well, Dennis told me, or Matt said, you know. <laughs> what, what, is it, what is it for you? So, um, yeah, I'll pray, and then we'll jump in. Is that all right? Great. Father God, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Father, that you're a God that does long to reveal yourself. You made us to know you, to be known by you, and to do life with you, and we thank you for that. And we thank you that from Genesis to Revelation, that is the heart of God that we see revealed. And we just ask, Lord, that tonight, as we press into some of these questions, that we would discover more of who you are, that we would be inspired to press in and discover uh, new depths to the relationship you call us into. So Holy Spirit, will you come and guide us? Amen. So, question number one then. Um, I say Revelation. The first question is actually from Daniel, um, which we read before Revelation, but it does link into Revelation um, as we go on. So, the first question is from Daniel 9, verse 24. And the question is, what does it mean by 77s? What does it mean by 77s? So, Dan. No, I don't know. Just to kick off with, um, before we go into this, there's seven questions, and the questions are going to be linked all the way through, okay? So don't think when we finish the first question that that's it, I'll forget it. There, 
pick up on what is said in the first questions between me and Matt, and you'll find links all the way through with everything so that it all fits together in a parcel at the end, okay? Um, Daniel 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse 24, what does it mean by 77s? Um, <clears throat> good question. So, verse 24 says, 77s, this is Gabriel talking to Daniel, okay? Gabriel's bringing a message to Daniel. 77s are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atonement for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, and to seal up vision on prophecy and to, to, the, to, the, to anoint the most holy place. Okay, so what's the question? What is 77s? In the Bible, you can get 77s or you can get 70 weeks of sevens. It means, it means the same thing. So when the, Bible, when the Old Testament says 70 weeks or 70 years, it, it just means the, the same thing. So in this case, you've got 77s. So it's 70 years of seven years, okay? Now, just to explain that, it means 70 times seven, okay? Which means 490. So in this case, it's 490 years that we're dealing with. Okay, so what Gabriel is saying to Daniel, there is going to be 490 years before the vision and prophecy to anoint the most holy place. And in other words, when Jesus is going to come, this is a prophecy going right the way through. Jesus is going to come 490 years after Gabriel has said this to Daniel. Okay, now we go through this and we'll pick it apart. So, verse 25, you know and understand this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. Right, stop. So it says that there will be, the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. Jerusalem is um, commanded to be restored by Nehemiah, okay? People come back um, and uh, build the temple, that's fine, but the walls are not built. Jerusalem is not built from being destructed by the Babylonians. So in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, it says that this is the time when Nehemiah is going to come back to build Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. Now, the date of that can be um, nailed down because in Nehemiah chapter 2, verse 18, it says that Nehemiah goes to Artaxerxes Longomenus, who is the head of the Persian Empire. Okay, he's like the king of the Persian Empire. Yeah. And so he comes, to, he comes to him and says, can I go to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls and rebuild the city? Now, we know from history that Artaxerxes Longomenus reigned from 465 onwards. And it says in Nehemiah that he came to ask permission to go back to Jerusalem 20 years into the reign of Xerxes, okay? After Xerxes, Longomenus. So that means it's 445 BC when Nehemiah says, can I go back and rebuild the walls? Okay, now this, this, this date's important, okay? So <clears throat> that is gonna happen. So 
This comes into that. No one understands this from the time the word goes out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. We're talking about 445 BC. It's all starting off. Now we're carrying on again. The ruler comes. There will be seven sevens. So we've already been through this. Seven sevens and 62 sevens. Now, seven sevens is 49. Okay, seven multiplied by seven is 49. And then 62 sevens is 384 years, I believe. So if you add that set together, 49 and the 300 and it's something like 343. Hang on a minute, I'll get this right. Um, yep, uh, three. 62 sevens is 434 years, 7 sevens is 49. Add the two together and you get 483 years till the Messiah comes, okay? So what Gabriel is saying is that Jesus is going to come, he's going to show up 438 years after, I've, after Nehemiah goes to build the walls of Jerusalem, okay? And now I know this is complicated, but... Um, it's the way it is. So what happens then is it if you work out 490, the original 490 years from the seven sevens, then you will come to seven years, which is left, because it would take, I hope I'm explaining this right, this, it, the, the, it takes 62 sevens and seven sevens equals 483 years. Now that leaves, that's when the Messiah is going to show up. Now that leaves seven years left to the 490 years, okay? Now if you just go down to the bottom, to uh, verse 27, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to sacrifice and offering. We're talking about uh, the Antichrist here, okay? He will, he will put an end to, uh, to sacrifice and offering and at the temple. Pick up this word, the temple, because that will come, we'll come back with that, okay? He will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. The 483 years that we've mentioned, the Messiah is going to come. Now, this has been worked out um, by several people uh, they must have a brain that's like Einstein, where they've used the uh, Hebrew uh, calendar and leap years and all the rest of it. And a particular bloke called Sir Robert Anderson um, is the, the famous guy for doing this. And what he's worked out going back to when Nehemiah is going to go back to build the walls and the city of Jerusalem is 445 B.C., and he's worked out that in, if you take these figures into to account 483 years, it works out that Jesus comes in to Jerusalem on a donkey on Palm Sunday as the Messiah. So this is, this, the, all this has apparently been worked out. I um, mean, some, some guys worked this out. And he comes into Jerusalem on the 14th of Nisan, which is uh, the Passover date, uh, which is the 6th of April in our language. Now, if 
the guys that were in Jesus' time, the Pharisees, the scribes, if they had looked back on all of this, they could have known when the Messiah came, right? But what it says in Luke chapter 19 and verse 42, Jesus says on that day when he brings in, uh, he rides a donkey into Jerusalem, he says, if, if you even had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. So Jesus is saying, you know, look back. If you, if you read this word, if you're so clever, Pharisees, if you're so clever, scribes, you would know that this is me, the Messiah, has arrived. And some Messianic Jews have looked back on this and clocked it and thought, we've missed the Messiah. He has he, arrived. So, so the, the dates work out. The, the Messiah comes to uh, Jerusalem on a donkey on the 14th of Nisan, A.D. 32. Um, now, uh, that, that is, is quite incredible. Um, so, what we've got to come to and what we will come to is the bit at the end where it says the, about the um, Antichrist, he will confirm a covenant with many for one seven in the middle of the seven. In the, I'll, I'll explain that. For one seven means seven years, okay? And in the middle of the seven means three and a half years. So you've got seven years is the seven, and half of the seven is three and a half years, okay? Um, so we're talking about the Antichrist here. Um, I'll just do a little bit more on this because it will come out um, in other questions. Well, what you've got is the, what's called the Great Tribulation. And that lasts for seven years. And that is when the Antichrist will come. The Antichrist will set himself up as a god. And everybody, I think, is fantastic. But then three and a half years into that seven years... He really lets it go, and people, Christians are killed. A lot of people are killed. Okay, so but we will come into more into that when we go into other questions on Revelation of what happens. Okay, so this is the way that um, I see this, and I, I I think it's absolutely fantastic that Gabriel is saying to Daniel and telling him this. So the seventy sevens are already gone. Jesus has come to Jerusalem on a donkey, one seventh year is left. That's the, that's the seven years of the Antichrist is to come. So 69 years of those seven seventies are gone, one year is left, the, the, the year for the Antichrist to come, which, which we will we'll either see or we won't see, depending on if we're around. Um, now, if you keep some of that in mind, then as we go through it all tonight, you will be picking up um, various things along. And at the end, you will get a picture of, of, of what's going on. Great. Any questions? No. Um, <laughs> um, so, yeah. So, so Den and I, actually, what's interesting about this is, when we spoke about this the other day, I got the impression you were going to talk about something completely different, but that's okay. Um, so, Den and I actually agree the whole first half of what Den said. We, we differ on the last section. So, just to, to go through this, uh, to explain where I'm coming from on this. So, um, Den's already explained that the, the, the Hebrew 77s, so the word 70, in, uh, so 77s, the word there is, uh, is I think is pronounced... Shubua or something like that, okay? And it means, like Den said, it means 70 lots of 
seven, and that Shabuah literally means period of seven. So it could be seven days, it could be seven weeks, it could be seven years, but we've got 70 lots of sevens, so seven years. Does that make sense? Yeah. There's loads of sevens everywhere. We love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, Den's right. I agree with Den as well. So that, that 70 lot of seven years equates to 490 years. Um, so breaking that down from what the passage said, like Den said, um, it's going to be this. There's going to be. Where is it? I find it here. Uh, let's look at verse. Um, 27, so 27 says, there will be seven sevens, so seven lots of seven years, 49 years, and then 62 sevens, so 62 lots of seven years. So seven and 62 together is 69, so 69 lots of seven is 483 years. And then it says, hey, at that point, um, after the 62 seven, so after the 69, all of it together, the anointed one, which in Hebrew literally is Messiah, so the Messiah will be put to death um, and will have nothing. So again, Dan mentioned this earlier on. Um, so Artaxerxes reigns um, around four, started reigning around 465 BC. Um, and in his 20th year, in 44 BC, a decree was made to rebuild Jerusalem, which is what this passage tells us, that that's after the decree is made, there'll be these uh, 483 years before the Messiah is killed. Are you with me? Yeah. Um, if you track in English years, it doesn't quite add up, but the um, Jewish calendar is a 360-day calendar, so 30 days, so a, a lunar cycle, okay? Um, which means that the 483 years times by 360 days is 173,880 days. So if you take 173,880 days and you add it on from the month of Nisan uh, of 445 BC, you end up, you end up at 32 AD. In, in, modern, in the modern calendar, that's 476 years and 25 days, okay? That's what that is. So you add that on and you get to 32 AD, which is what Den said, which is right as Jesus is coming in to be crucified. At this point, the Messiah would be killed and have nothing. Okay, that's what, that's what the, the prophecy says. And that's the time of, of Jesus' crucifixion. So we're agreed up to that point. We, we think the same thing. Where we differ then is what we think about the next bit, where it talks about the next, the 70, uh, sorry, the 70th period of seven, so the last period of seven years. So Den talked about it being about the Antichrist and a period yet to come. For me, when I read the scripture and I read this passage, I actually see it as something that's already happened. So it took place around the time of Jesus. Uh, so it says that after the death of the Messiah, there would be another period of seven years, okay? And halfway through that period of seven years, there would be another ruler, and he and his people would put an end to sacrifice in the temple um, and, and, and to offering. So sacrifice and offering in the temple would be stopped, um, and that the abomination that causes desolation would be set up, okay? Now, I don't, is there any, were any of you here when we preached on Mark 13 and Matthew 24? Do you remember that one? Some of you, yeah, okay. So um, for me, this links to that passage because I think that passage is talking about the same set of events. Um, so 
The first Roman Jewish war ran from 66 AD to 73 AD. So within a generation of the death of the Messiah, 66 AD to 73 AD. I don't know if you clocked that, but from 66 AD to 73 AD is seven years. And in the middle of that seven-year war, on 70 AD, Titus, the son of the Roman emperor, who later became emperor, invaded Jerusalem and conquered the temple um, and destroyed the temple, bringing an end to sacrifice. So sacrifice and offerings in the Jewish temple in Jerusalem have stopped. So for me, this is something that has happened. So halfway through this seven-year period, Titus invades Jerusalem, destroys the temple. Titus's banner is raised up by his men, and he's declared to be the next emperor by his men, which he then goes on to become. And depending upon which accounts of history you read, some of them also tell you that Titus himself got a, um, a prostitute, got a whore, and had sex on the altar of the temple in the Holy of Holies. So there's a whole load of bad stuff that happens, this abomination that causes desolation. Um, and for me, when I look at that, that is what that's talking about. That's a seven-year period that happened within, the genera- within a generation of the Messiah being crucified, and that period of seven has happened, and that ruler has ended the offerings and sacrifices in the temple. Does that make sense? Yeah, p- potentially. I'm not saying it can't be both, although later when we get onto questions about Antichrist stuff, you'll see that Den and I don't see it as the same way. But I, again, I have to confess to you guys, I, I'm not God. Uh, do you know? No, sorry, guys. And, and, and do you know what? Um, none of the theologians over hundreds of years who've written on this from all different points of view, they're not God either. They're all just doing their best to figure out what the scripture means. And for me, when I read this and I read what other theologians have written, that is what seems to make the most sense because when I look at the 69 period of sevens it was a literal lot of periods of seven years that led up to an actual event that took place in history and following that there would be another period of seven years and the temple has been destroyed and the offering and sacrifice has stopped so for me that's how I would read that that period there but yeah absolutely it could have been there's something about prophecy in the bible that seems to be cyclical so the prophecy happens in that period of time, but then seems to go on and have meaning for a future generation as well. So I'm not saying it isn't that, um, or isn't possible that it is that, but when I read that, that's how I read it. Does that make sense? Great. All right then. I don't know, but I thought it was a fascinating question. I was like, oh, this is going to be cool. Okay. Um, the next question is Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, and the question is, what is Hades? Um, Den. Let's read the verse. I am the living one. I was dead. And now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death in Hades. So <clears throat> what you've got is, is two separate things, I believe. I don't believe Hades is the same as hell. Okay. Hades is the Greek god of the underworld. Everything down there is according to the Greeks in Greek mythology. That's their god, Hades. So they believed that when everybody died, they would go down there and the god, Hades, would keep them down there. That was his domain. So that's where Hades come from. The 
Hebrews called it Sheol, okay? So Hebrews are Sheol. The uh, Bible was translated into the Greek, so the Greek calls it Hades. Okay, so that's, <clears throat> that's the difference. Now what I've got is a couple of, of verses to sort of sort that out. Um, <clears throat> Jesus made no atonement for Hades as a victor. He went to Hades not as a victim. Oh, not as a victim, he went as a victor. <clears throat> now this Hades is different from the final judgment of the great white throne. Okay, so later on in Revelation, we come to the great right throne. That's when people who have been in Hades will come before Jesus and be judged. Okay, and then they will go into hell with the devil. Okay, so at this time, when Hades is about, the devil is not in hell, he's not chained. He will be chained, and then at the great judgment, he will be thrown into the lake of fire, hell, and all the people who didn't believe in Jesus and poo-pooed Jesus would be going into hell. At the moment, those people would be in a place called Hades. Okay, you've heard of the bosom of Abraham. Um, let's just go to um, Luke uh, chapter 16. Um, and I'm looking at verses 19, starting in 19. Okay. <clears throat> there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades. Notice the Hades bit, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, I believe that that is Hades. That these, these people will be in Hades until Jesus has conquered, come back, conquered, and the great white throne comes. Revelation, I think it's Revelation 19. And then these people that are in Hades will be judged and they will then be sent to hell um, with the devil who then will have been chained and would have been thrown into hell. So that is a finish. But I believe at the moment there's a place called Hades. All right? Because, I mean, I know that this is like a parable and a parable is not doctrinal, but it still has a weight. Jesus wouldn't have said this if, if, if it wasn't right. Um, uh, even in parable form, he wouldn't have said this if it wasn't right. So it's not doctrinal, but I, I, I believe that he said this, and I believe that that is exactly how it is. So I believe that Hades is, is a holding position, if you like, because the people who are going to hell, who have died and are going to hell, they're not there at the moment. They're not there until the final judgment because the devil isn't there at the moment. He's still roaming about. So 
after the final judgment, then those people who were destined to hell will be judged and will go to hell. And we will, we will rise and we will be, be with the Lord. So that's what I think Hades means. Great. Once again, we pretty much agree with each other on this one. Um, sorry if you were expecting more fisticuffs. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, um, for me, um, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew, uh, they talk about a place known as Abraham's bosom or Sheol, which essentially is the Hebrew understanding of the realm of the dead, um, where the dead are, uh, where the dead go, so to speak. Um, and then when the Jews were conquered first by the Greeks and then by the Romans, obviously everything, the, the kind of international language was Greek, if you like that, in that time. And so the Greeks start, uh, the, the Jews started to uh, translate stuff into Greek. And when they're trying to translate stuff across and explain to Greek speakers what their scriptures say, the best Greek word that they could find to explain what they meant was to borrow the word Hades, which was about the, the, the realm of the dead, the underworld, if you like, um, the place that the dead are. Um, so I don't think that Hades is, is the, per when you think about it in the Greek form, I don't think the Greek understanding of Hades is the perfect um, transition or explanation of the Hebrew understanding of Sheol and Abraham's bosom, but it goes some way that was the best word that they had across the two cultures and languages to explain it, if, if that makes sense. Um, for me, the rich man and Lazarus thing, I do see that as a, a parable. Um, I, when I go through the scriptures, and we did this at a Bible Q&A some point over the last year, um, so I'm not going to unpack all of it again, um, but when you go through the scriptures and you look at Sheol and the realm of the dead or Abraham's bosom in the Hebrew mindset, it is a place of rest and a place of sleep. So for example, when, um, when Saul uh, has the um, Winch of Endor, yeah, the, 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 the spiritist, bring back Samuel from Abraham's bosom, from Sheol, he, Samuel appears and he's like, why have you awoken me? because he was sleeping or resting. When Jesus talks about people going to the realm of Hades or Sheol or Abraham's bosom, he, he talks about the fact that they have gone to sleep. So, so there is a difference between the Greek understanding and the Hebrew understanding, but Hades was the best Greek word to explain the Hebrew concept of Sheol. So when I read this, I think that this parable of the rich man and Lazarus is much more, is much more about the life they lived. It's a parable about life that we live rather than an explanation of what happens in the, in the realm of Sheol. Um, but, so, but I think I would see that the Jewish understanding of Sheol or Abraham's bosom is, is a place of rest and sleep until the resurrection when all are raised up and death and Hades give up their dead um, and Jesus returns. Does that make sense? Um, so I, I wouldn't see this as, like Dan said, doctrinal. So in the realm of the dead, there's, there's these two places within that where people are kind of, oh, what am I doing here? And you're across that chasm. I think that at that point, everyone has laid to rest and is sleeping, so to speak, awaiting the resurrection at the return of Jesus. Um, does that answer that question for you? Great. All right, then. Um, so next question. We're in Revelation chapter 2, uh, verse 13. I like this, where Dan does all the hard work, and I just add a few little bits in. It's fun. We might carry on with this. Yeah. <laughs> Revelation chapter 2, verse 13. Um, so 
Jesus, through John, writing to the church in Pergamum, and he says to them, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And the question is this, where does Satan live? Den? <laughs> It's got a lovely house, <laughs> big gates, <laughs> lots of red. Yeah. Okay, um, seven churches of Asia Minor, and um, we're into the Church of Pergamon here. Um, all, the, all the churches have done something, almost something wrong. Philadelphia is, is good, but Pergamon is a big um, no-no. Um, so where does Satan live? Um, I'm just going to read the verses out so that you get the context. Uh, verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, uh, if, if, you, if you're not familiar with this, by the way, um, John is writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, and he's, he's talking about those churches and what's wrong with them or what is right with them. Um, and it's the word of the Lord to John. It's the word, the, 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 it's the revelation, the prophecy of Jesus Christ to, to, to the church, Okay. Um, to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword. That's the Lord, okay? I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. What is happening here is, just at the moment, don't think of Satan being everywhere, we, we, uh, I'll come back to that. So what, what the Lord is saying to the church in Pergamon through John is that in Pergamon, it's the seat of the Roman occupation and government in Asia Minor. So you've got these seven churches, but the church in Pergamon is where the Roman administration for that whole area happens. Now, very often, um, people in the church, people going right back to uh, the Puritans, have said that the Romans are the Antichrist. I'm not saying they're, the, they're not the Antichrist, I'm just saying that, right? This is how bad people thought of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire has its government there for Asia Minor. So that's the bad thing, that's the almost satanic thing. But also in Pergamum, it's noted for a lot of worship of other gods. So in Pergamon, you've got a huge statue of Zeus, and people are gonna worship that. There is a load of other uh, people to worship, and they are, uh, there's a temple dedicated to Dionysus, there's a de dedicated to Athena, one to Dementi, and a temple to worship Caesar, um, who is a worship Caesar, this is worshiping the emperor. So you've got to apply to Rome to build a temple to worship Caesar, and they've got that privilege. So they think they're one up. They're right up the top of all of these places around because they've got permission to build a temple to worship Caesar. Uh, the Nicolaitans were there. Um, the Nicolaitans approved a morality. And so it's a center of pagan religion for the whole area. So the whole area of Asia Minor, this is 
the place which is a bad place. So what um, the verses are saying is that, look, this is the center where, where Satan lives. It's, it's, a, it's a play on words in a way. This is where Satan lives because of all what's going on. Now, the actual question of where does Satan lives, he roams the earth. Um, he goes backwards and forwards on the earth, um, doing everything evil, anything he can, anything he can get up to. But just here, it just, it's just applying it to Pergamon because of all the stuff that is going on in, in Pergamon. Great. Um, what he said. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, I didn't think it was going to be this easy. Yeah, of course. I was expecting, yeah. Um, so really similar. Um, again, Pergamon, Dens talks about some of this stuff already, but the, the altar for Zeus was there, and it was the center of imperial cult worship and all that kind of thing. Um, so uh, um, this idea, that this center of evil, where the one who is evil has some sort of throne or rule or seat of power that kind of thing is how people look at that um i think do i literally think that when john writes this or jesus writes this he, he's meaning that's where satan's literal throne or home is um i'm not sure i interpret it quite that literally um i think that at that time that was a place where it seemed that satan was operating he was like then said um it, it was the center of the cult of um the imperial cult, so worship of the Roman Empire, uh, the emperor, and um, for me, we talked about this before, but for me, there's links in Revelation between the beast and Rome, and do you remember we talked about how, we, I definitely think we mentioned this in the preach, but last time, I think we had a question about this, and I talked about how um, Satan has, uses human kingdoms and rule and people and authority to enact evil in the world so do you remember we looked at how we see these prophecies about the king of tyre and the king of sidon and um uh, and and egypt and babylon and it, it points in like isaiah and places like that where it's being talked about it seems to be a prophecy about that king but then suddenly it says that king was in the garden or that king fell from heaven or that king and you're like hang on a minute was that who was in Eden just Adam and Eve was that king there no who was there Satan was there so there's something about this person that's being controlled and operated almost puppet like by the powers of evil by Satan does that make sense so again there's something about what was going on in Pergamon at that time and through the Roman Empire and the worship of the emperor that is some sort of um, scheme or power uh, that the enemy is using within the world. Does that, does that make sense? Um, I think the Bible is, is clear. The, the world is, is Satan's domain. I think for me, and probably there'll be a few differences that we have on this, but f for me, um, when you read the Old Testament and you encounter Satan, it seems that Satan had easy access between the heavens and the earth. So take Job as an example where Satan just walks into the throne room of God and just joins in the conversation with the other angels and the divine council and he's just there, part of it. And then he's out roaming on the earth and he just seems to have this kind of uh, freedom to roam between the earth and the heavens, the physical and spiritual realms. But there's a shift in the story. And I, when I preached on Revelation 12, I kind of alluded to this, where you see something of the the birth, the death and resurrection of Jesus that changed the position of Satan within the cosmos, if you like, the heavens and the earth. So um, at the end of that, we see that Satan is 
on the earth, bound between the earth and the sea. And there's this thing going on there where he's fallen. And we get verses in the scriptures where Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning. And so I think at one point, Satan had freedom to move between the heavens and the earth. But I think that now he is bound upon the earth. He is limited to the face of the earth. And the Bible starts using language like the fact that Satan is the ruler of the kingdom of the air, being this world, that he is the ruler of this dark age, or he's the god of this age. In 2 Corinthians 4 verse 4, Jesus calls him the prince of this world in John chapter 12 verse 31. Um, It's interesting in Matthew 4 that Satan thinks that the kingdoms of the world are his to offer Jesus. Do you remember when he tempts him? So so there's something about Satan's position and where he is, his home or his seat of power or throne, if you like, uh, that is in the realm of the world. So, And I think, aside from a few little different interpretations on that, that we kind of land in a similar place on that. That's where we think that Satan is seated, so to speak. Does that make sense? Great. Let's look at the next question. How are you guys doing? You okay? You with us so far? All right, great. We're going we're gonna, yeah, to make it speedy. All right, Revelation chapter 6. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. This says, uh, Why would the Lamb give the red horse rider power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other, rather than give peace to the earth and make men love each other? Which makes sense, right? Jesus is the one who's supposed to be the one who brings peace. And so what's going on here? Why is power given to the red horse rider to take peace and to make men slay each other? Den. All to do with the seven years of the Great Tribulation. I'm not kidding. Um, I'm going to kick off with um, verse 1 of chapter 6 because um, that's relevant. Um, I watched as a lamb open the first of the seven seals. This is the, the seven seals of Revelation. Okay, so Jesus has been handed the, the scrolls and he's going to open them one by one. And there's going to be seven seals and he's going to open it. And every time he opens a seal, uh, something's going to happen on earth, something, something's going to break loose. I watched as a lamb open the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Now, don't get mixed up with the white horse which Jesus is going to ride out on, where it says, He is King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, written on him. This is going around about chapter 19, okay? So don't get confused with that, and I'll explain this. Then I heard one of the four, sorry, then I looked and there before me was a white horse. Its rider had a bow. Jesus don't have a bow. He has a sword. Okay. He was given a crown. Jesus is not given a crown. He has a crown. Nobody gives Jesus a crown. He rode out and as a conqueror bent on conquest. When the lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come, Then another horse came out, a fiery red one, and this is to do with the question. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make people kill each other to him who was given a large sword. Now, this is coming into the the, the seven years of tribulation, the three and a half years left in the seven years of tribulation where the Antichrist has come and now havoc is going to be wreaked on the earth. And the Lord is, 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 this is going to happen. The Lord's allowing this to happen. It's going to, it, it's part of prophecy. It's part of Bible. It's part of how it is. And so through these seven seals, various things are going to happen. Now, why would 
the Lord take, want to take peace from the earth because this is in the three and a half years of the tribulation. And peace is going to be taken away. When, when the Lord takes his peace away from the earth, then man will start to kill each other because the only thing that's holding things together at the moment is the peace of God. God God's bringing peace to the earth. And when that peace goes, if that peace is taken away, then there will be great tribulation. And this is part of the great tribulation. And all of these seals are part of that great tri tribulation. So taking, taking peace away is part of what is going to come in that, in that great tribulation. And, and the Antichrist will be let loose within that. No peace on earth from God. Everything will be let loose and it will be... A, a terrible time and just just to just to go on to one more when the lamb opened the third seal i heard the third living creature say come i looked and there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand then i heard what sounded like a voice coming from the four living creatures saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil or wine famine will come to the land it, it's going to be it's going to be absolutely terrible when i was probably i don't know maybe about 30 years there was a guy um who wrote who was a christian he became a christian he's a rock singer he became a christian um can't think of his name no can't think of his name and he wrote this song um alice keeper no uh, he wrote this song children died and the days grew cold a piece of bread would buy a bag of cold right um so that this this sort of sums it up with 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 how it was uh, larry norman yep um <laughs> when the lamb opened the fourth seal i heard the voice of the four living creatures say come i looked in every form he was a pale horse its rider was named death and hades was following close behind him they were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword a fourth of all the people on the earth famine and plague and by the wild beasts of the earth so carrying on through the seals what it means is that this is that time of tribulation and god has taken his the question the answer to the question god has taken his peace away and it's going to be a terrible time great um so we differ a little bit on this one um yeah 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 somewhat um so for me i um yeah, the question was, um, why would the lamb give the red horse rider power to take peace from the earth and make men slay each other? Um, yeah. Which is such a great question, because if Jesus is the one who brings peace, why is he, like, why is he doing this and bringing about uh, war and death and not peace and all that, all that kind of thing? So what's going on here? So, 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 and very much when you read this, the rider is given authority. So it's not just something that he does. Um, so it's, don't think like Satan just goes and does it because he wants to. This is someone who's given the authority to do this thing. Um, and that raises questions for us, doesn't it? Why, why is a God of peace and love doing all of that? So for, for me, um, I, I, you may have picked up on this already, but I, I don't believe that scripture teaches us a, a literal seven-year 
tribulation. Um, and we'll unpack some more of that on a later question. Um, so um, I don't look at the seven seals and connect them to a literal seven-year tribulation. And there isn't anything in the writing of the seven seals that says this is a seven-year tribu tribu tribulation, so to speak, like that, in that, in that kind of blatant way of saying it. So um, I don't connect that. And if you were you guys there when I did my third preach on Revelation in December? So you might have seen this little diagram that I used. There's spares if you'd like a copy. Um, so I look at the seven seals, the seven trumpets, the seven signs, the seven bowls, the seven responses to judgment, the seven visions of victory, and the seven lots of twelves as... Uh, action replays of the same event it's the same goal jesus scores the goal boom it's game set matches over he's won and it's the action replay from all the different angles of the goal being scored by jesus so to speak if you want to use a sports metaphor okay um and so this this whole all of these things these blocks of seven these seven bowls signs trumpets um seals and so on they are all for me, linking the period between when Jesus ascended into heaven and when Jesus comes again. Um, and um, so this whole period, and I think when you read this, this is why every generation that reads Revelation thinks he's coming in our time. Because every generation that has existed since Jesus ascended into heaven will look at this and go, war is just getting worse. There's plague there's famine there's earthquake there's destruction there's and and more and we see this and um and so i i look at this and um i think well if this isn't a literal tribulation what are these seven seals what's going on in this period here what's going on with the red horse rider now you might remember i said that revelation um has something like 600 and something references to the old testament in it which means that every verse, every verse in Revelation has at least two references to the Old Testament. And that's a bit mind-blowing. I don't know if you spotted that when you read Revelation, but I certainly didn't. Scholars more wise than I have had to explain it to simple folk like myself, right? Um, but there are loads of links back to the Old Testament. And when you start reading about these four horsemen, right, these horses, these different colours... John is a Jew, he's a Hebrew, he knows his Old Testament. So when he starts writing about this, it's just like he's taking Old Testament language and writing in code to the, the believers of the day so that they can make sense of something that's going on in their world without alerting the Roman authorities that are then going to um, clamp down on them and try and kill them and all that kind of things that are against Jesus at that time. And so in Zechariah, in the Old Testament, there is a prophecy that involves four horses of each of a different color, a red one, a black one, a pale one, a, like, and, and it links back to Zechariah. And in Zechariah, these four horses, these four horsemen, they patrol the earth. Uh, they patrol from the four corners of the earth. And um, in Revelation, it's like they get mentioned again. They get, in, they get linked up with the four... Um, creatures the living creatures who summon the four horsemen if you like um, and Jesus gives authority to them so something to spot here is that Jesus is in control all right Jesus is in control um, and he gives authority and they get authority to remove peace and we think what 
what is, what's going on there? But if you cast your eyes, well, you have to do it right now. I'm not going to move us on quite quickly because of time. But you can check out 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You can check out Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 14. And in those passages, Jeremiah 6 says this. It says that, that, that in that time, people will be saying, peace, peace, when there isn't actually any peace. And so there's this sense of false peace. And don't we live in a time where the world offers us, if you do this, if you do that, if you do this, you'll live at peace. You'll know joy. You'll know hope. And actually what is going on is Revelation's all about the bringing of truth. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus is bringing truth. He's stripping away false peace to reveal what is really going on. Does that, does that make sense? Um, he... He's taken away this false peace that actually brings oppression to bring the true peace of heaven. And, and, and at the end of the seven seals, like at the end of the seven bowls and the seven signs and the seven trumpets, if you look at the diagram that I gave out the other week, you'll see that each of those blocks of seven end with the end, with Jesus reigning, with heaven coming, with Jesus victorious, um, with evil defeated and Jesus on the throne. And we get that each, each block of seven. Um, and so I would look at the horsemen there and what I see is that John is taking this Old Testament language and the Holy Spirit is at work in him taking that and reusing it to explain what is happening in the world around them what's happening in our world now and that Jesus ultimately is still in control and he does have the victory and will have it does that make sense um, that would be how I would interpret that all right I'm going to move us on because we've still got three to go and these are the meteor ones <laughs> So um, we have to try and be as punchy on it as we can. Is that all right? All right. Great. Um, Revelation uh, chapter 12, um, particularly verse 6 and 14, um, and, and linking back to Daniel chapter 7 verse 25. The question is this. What is the meaning of time, times, and half a time? Great tribulation. I'm uh, just going to try to scoot on with this. Um, the opening of chapter 12, a uh, great sign appeared in heaven, woman clothed with the sun, moon, and her feet, etc., etc. I'm trying to whip through this now. Uh, then another, uh, verse 3, another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten, ten horns, seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky, and that's the um, angels following uh, the devil, and flung them to earth. Dragon stood in front of the woman, which is Israel, who was about to give birth, so that it might devour a child, which is Jesus. The moment he was born, she gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule over all the nations with an iron scepter, which means it's Jesus. And her child was snatched up to God, to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness, Israel, to a place prepared for her by God, where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. And guess what? 1,260 days is three and a half years. Amazing. <laughs> then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. Dragon and his angels fought back, but he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. That ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. And that is the end of him ever accusing the people of God before, uh, before God. He can't accuse the people anymore. He's not going to have access to heaven anymore. Do you remember going to Job? He had access to heaven to accuse 
uh, Job before God. But now he's thou. This is near the end times, and he's got no access to heaven anymore. Um, and then we go down to the verse, which is 14. Uh, the woman, which is Israel, was given two wings and a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness where she would be taken care of for a time, times and a half, times and time and a half again, okay, out of the serpent's reach. So that is like Israel being taken out of the serpent's reach uh, for the three and a half years of, of tribulation. And Daniel 7.25, which Matt mentioned, I'm just whipping over to that. Um, he will speak against the Most High, this is uh, the lawless one, the, the, the Antichrist, and oppress his holy people and try to change the set times and the laws. The holy people will be delivered, delivered into his hands, delivered into this time. Israel's delivered out. This time, the people will be delivered, delivered into his hands for a time, times and a half time, three and a half years of tribulation. Okay. Um, and I'll leave it there because time's running. You sure? Yeah, yeah. All right. Just in case you're um, still wondering how Den got three and a half from times, times, time, times, and half a time. Um, time is one lot, so one year. Times is two, so one and two is three, because multiple times, and then half a time is the half. Does that make sense? Just in case you're wondering where that came from. Time, one, times two, so one and two is three, and half a time three and a half that's where people get that from in case you're kind of going well I know that people talk about three and a half and time times and half a time but time times and half a time looks like two and a half to me what's the, you know that's how they get it um so just 42 months 42 weeks uh we'll, we'll come on to well so um oh man All right, keeping it as simple as possible for now. <laughs> um, I, I, Revelation 12, yeah, I did, I did, I did. So, um, so um, like I already mentioned, I, I don't see this literal seven-year tribulation, three and a half years as half of it, and then another three and a half years, the other half kind of thing. Um, I, when I look at Revelation, so in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 9, John says, I am your brother in the tribulation. Now, your Bible might say I'm your brother in suffering, uh, but in the Greek, that's the same word that we translate as tribulation later on. Just in that chapter, we write suffering. In that chapter, we write tribulation. So for John, the tribulation, I see when I read the scriptures that the tribulation this period of time of testing of of difficulty uh, was something that John and the believers in that day already lived in does that make sense so I don't think it's something yet to come I think it was something that he was already in the Greek word that John uses is the same word that gets used later on when we talk about tribulation and we translate it that way so so John's already in it I, I am your brother in the tribulation um, so not just some intense period of suffering before the return of Jesus, but for John, I think in Revelation, tribulation is about the inevitable result of following Jesus and bearing Jesus' name. So this is what happens when you follow Jesus and you bear his name. It's going to be hard <laughs> and the world's not going to like it and the enemy's not going to like it. And that's true as it was for John back then. It, 
is true for people in, in our world today now as well. Um, and that is juxtaposed next to John talking about those that, that take uh, that follow the beast and take the mark of the beast. You'll see the mark of Jesus and the mark of the beast kind of juxtaposed next to each other um, within the book of Revelation. So just to, to set that as a backdrop as I come into the time, times and half a time thing, because I'm not thinking about it in the same way that kind of Den was thinking about it as a literal kind of period of three years. Um, for me, um, obviously we've linked it back to Daniel 7 um, and Daniel 7 alludes to this period of tribulation as well that he uses the phrase time times and half a time and so again like John takes other Old Testament things like the four horsemen and brings through the spirit brings new breath to them for the people that he's speaking to about their current situation and what is going on I see that John does the same thing with Daniel's time times and half a time and he takes that and he brings that and he speaks to it and and I would see that John's talking about time times and half a time which then alluded to is the same as the 1,260 days, which also is the same calculated as 42 months. By the way, you'll notice in Revelation 11, we get this period of 42 months that gets mentioned, Revelation uh, 11 verse 2, um, and it mentions the 1,260 days there as well. Um, I, I see that as the period of uh, the church age, if you like. So that is the, that's from the ascension of Jesus and the birth of the church all the way through until Jesus comes again. That's the period we're in now. We're in that period now. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that um, later on. Um, but it is a period of suffering, which Revelation talks about, but it's also a period of testimony, which Revelation talks about. And we live in a time now where the church both suffers and parts of the church bear testimony to the gospel and the truth of who Jesus is. And that's something that we are in right now. But it's also a period from Revelation 12, verses 6 and 14, a period of God's protection which is a period that I think we live in now as well, where God's protection is on the church. So there's all these things happening in the same period. In the 42 months, in the 1,260 days, in the time, times, and half a time, we discover in Revelation that these periods have in them suffering, testimony, and the protection of God over his people. Do you, do you see that? And that's something that the church has lived in since the church was born until Jesus comes, uh, until Jesus comes again. Um, Oh, there's so many layers to that to unpack and we haven't got time so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to park that there and some of it we'll pick up on later on when we come on to some of the other stuff is, is that okay? so for Den he's saying a, a, a literal three and a half year period for me I'm saying that like I would see all the numbers that get used in Revelation as symbols to paint a bigger picture that are imagery that are unpacking something that the reader is supposed to understand is happening both then and now and until Jesus comes again uh, imagery to explain something bigger to us that links us back so like we looked at Genesis this morning where I was pulled out the word Egypt or I pulled out the number 10 or I pulled out the and we were like hang on a minute this links back to a previous story when John uses time times and half a time or when he writes it as 1,260, or he writes it as 42 months, he's going, think back to another story. This is telling you something that was spoken about then or was true then that is now true for us as well in this period. Also, really quickly, the 42 months is an allusion to Numbers 33 and the 42 stops on the wilderness journey. Do you see that? So, so they went through a time of trial and testing a a 
um, tribulation time, if you like, a testing time, is what that word means, on this journey through the wilderness. And Numbers 33 lists 42 stops that they have on that journey. And so we now, as the people of God, have this 42-month period, this, this time um, of of testing, of suffering, of difficulty, but of testimony about who our God is, who is leading us through it. And he is the one that protects us as we journey it until we wait for him to come again and restore us or restore the world. Um, that promised land sense that came at the end of the 42 stops on the journey. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, cool. All right. Okay, we've got two to go. Strap in. <laughs> um, Revelation 20, here we go. Revelation 20, verse 2. What does it mean that Satan is bound for a thousand years? Yep, um, my favorite chapter in the Bible, and has been for 40 or 50 years. Um, Okie dokie. Um, so, Satan bound for a thousand years. Uh, verse 1 And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven. Bear in mind that this is the last times we're in Revelation chapter 20 now, right? And I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the abyss and holding in his hand a great chain. He sees a dragon, that ancient serpent, who is a devil, of Satan, devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss and locked and sealed it over him to keep him from deceiving the nations anymore until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be set free for a short time. Um, now, this, this, from my point of view, this ties everything together, what we've been talking about tonight, okay? So what you've got is, is this thousand-year reign is called the millennium. Um, uh, for obvious reasons, it's millennium is a thousand years. So what happens is that the Christians on earth when this is about to, to take place and before the tribulation, are taken up in what's called a rapture. Okay, that's just a, uh, rapture comes from Latin, so it's just, that's just what it's called. So the Christians are taken up, they're out the way, if you want to put it that way, right? And then you get the seven years of tribulation, what we've been talking about tonight. The devil sets himself up on earth, and everybody looks to him and thinks he's going to make everything right, thinks he's going to bring peace to everything, and the whole world comes and looks at him. This is, the, this is the guy who's going to do it. But after three and a half years, he turns around against everybody, and you get the tribulation that we've been talking about all the way through time, right, right, right through the night. Jesus then comes back and reigns for a thousand years. And this is where the devil is chained and put into the abyss for a, thousand, for a thousand years. So he can't do anything on the earth. He cannot mess about with, with, with people on the earth. He is locked away and his demons are locked away with him. Jesus reigns with, his, with, with us, the people, the elect for a thousand years on earth. And the earth is taken back from its um, creation, when, when the creation was fallen and the earth was corrupted, then that corruption is taken back. The earth is made good because Jesus is reigning and we will 
the saints will be reigning with him. Then the devil will be released from the abyss just for a short time, Armageddon, because there will be people on the earth who the earth will be still be populated through the thousand years because people will be living and there will still be some people that won't come to accept Jesus as the Lord because of man's depravity and these people will gather together in Armageddon. Jesus will crush that Armageddon and then there will come in verse 11, I saw the great white throne for him who was seated on it the earth and heavens fled from his presence and there was no place for them and I saw the dead great small standing before the throne and books were opened another book was opened which was in the book of life and the dead were judged according to what they had done so this is the dead coming from Hades now which is, which is, book of, which is a book of life the dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the books the sea gave up the dead that were in it and the death and Hades gave up the dead that was in them, and each person was judged according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. Anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. And then a new heaven and a new earth. That, that is how I see the, the end times in the, the millennium. And that is what I've been building through to, um, all the way through the questions. Just one thing, when I said... Um, Take in mind the temple. It, it says a temple. Back in Daniel, it says the temple. Uh, there are some people that, that would believe that this temple is a temple that is constructed in the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. And that is the temple which the Antichrist would come to to uh, reign in, in the seven years of tribulation. And um, it, it, at the moment, there is um, a, a place called a Jewish institution in Jerusalem and they've got plans to build a temple they've got, they know what it looks like they know what lot to do they've already made things like um, priest garments because they think in in their Jewish way that they're going to go back to um, worship as they did in the Old Testament um, slaying uh, animals etc so they're, they're building all of this up but to make if this temple comes about which is talked about in Daniel, if it comes about, then the world has got to agree to that because the Muslim nation is never going to agree to that with the Dome of the Rock um, being on the Temple Mount. So someone like the Antichrist, if that temple is built, I'm not all, all with this, but I'm just bringing this to you. If that temple is built, then someone like the Antichrist will have to come over, overcome all of the um, Islamic um, opposition to this to build that temple so the temple could be built on the temple mount and that could be where the antichrist comes to set himself up as a god in the seven years tribulation so that's how i see the thousand year reign and and how it pans out cool all right sorry yeah yeah dan and i do think very differently about this i'll just throw this out there as well just um i don't what i'm about to share with you is, is different to what dan thinks but i don't share it from a place of thinking i'm right and dan's wrong i uh, the, the the truth is as i i used to think something different 
But the more I read scripture, the more I came to this conclusion. But I'll go on reading scripture and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak to me. And who knows how I'll understand it in five or ten years' time. So please don't receive what I'm telling you as, you know, this is, this is definitely, this is just, as I read it now, this is my best understanding of how it fits with the big story of the Bible and what I see Jesus doing. So um, what does it mean that Satan is bound for a thousand years? Okay, so first up, I, I've said this already that... Um, I don't see Revelation as a step-by-step chronological series of events where this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens and this happens. And I, I holding up my diagram again, which, it, which if you're listening on the podcast, you can find at counterslip.org forward slash revelation. And it's on there for you to have a little look at. Um, but um, yeah, I, I've said this already that on this diagram that I see each of these blocks of seven as action replays of the same series of events. Okay, so it doesn't, it doesn't kind of follow that this happens and this happens and this happens. We're seeing the same series of events, which means that what's going on here in Revelation 20 is another action replay of something else that we've already seen and heard about. Does that make sense? We, we've, <clears throat> when we get to the bit about the war, we've already seen things about war happening. Um, so this is another action replay of, a same, of the same series of events that's going on. Um, my, I guess my... Um, one of the things that's led me to this is, is my problem with understanding it differently to how I understand it now is that in order for it to be a little bit like Dem was explaining, I would see that that means Jesus has to come back multiple times. So there's the return and the rapture, there's the retu- like the, the rain and then Satan released and then another return and with the, the battle and then another return with the great white throne and all that kind of thing, which for me doesn't stack up with the rest of New Testament theology where we see one victorious return of Jesus that brings an end to all of it. Does that, does that make sense? So when I read that, that's the framework in my mind that all of the New Testament is pointing to this one victorious return of Jesus that is the end of, of all of it. Um, so um, I've, I, I talked about this when we did Revelation 12 into Revelation 13. Um, I, believe, <laughs> I believe that we, again, we are in the thousand years. I don't believe that thousand is literal, like all the other numbers in Revelation, they are symbolic, that point to something bigger. So for me, it doesn't mean thousand as in literal 1,000 years. Uh, it means, so, so like today, if I was to say to you, oh my gosh, I went to this event and there were billions of people there, right? What I mean by that is a number that I couldn't count. Does that make sense? Back in ancient Hebrew, 1,000 was like saying a billion to us today. It was a huge number, um, and so it meant this big, big number. Okay, um, And so I don't think it's a literal 1,000 years. I think it's, an, it's a huge number of years in which Satan is bound and Jesus, Jesus reigns. Um, and I think that we're in that now. And you might think, well, hang on a minute. How is Jesus reigning and Satan bound? Because that doesn't seem to add up with my understanding of the world right now. But it depends on how you understand what it means to be bound. So Jesus is ascended from earth after his resurrection into heaven to the throne of God, right? And we see that language in um, like Mark 13, Matthew 24, where it talks about um, that Jesus... um, uh, Oh, come on, Matt. It talks about Jesus... uh, um, uh, being like the son of man riding on the clouds. You remember that language? Which is a direct link back to Daniel. Now in Daniel, when the son of man rides on the clouds, he doesn't ride from heaven to earth. 
he rides into the throne room of God. So when it talks about the Son of Man riding on the clouds, it's talking about the ascension of Jesus to the throne of heaven. Jesus is now enthroned. When we sing that he is king and he's seated on the throne, we're not singing about something that's going to happen one day in the future. We're singing about the truth that has happened now. Jesus sits on heaven's throne. He is king and he does rule now. And in the scriptures, we get things like, my Lord said to my Lord, um, to sit on the throne and until I make your enemies a footstool. So we get this verse about Jesus being sat on the throne. He is reigning while his enemies are being made a footstool. Just because there is a king doesn't mean there isn't an enemy. Does that make sense? Just because King Charles sits on the throne, I know it doesn't work in quite the same way anymore with monarchy, but just because King Charles sits on the throne doesn't mean that people don't like the monarchy or don't like the way that the UK is run don't exist within the UK. Does, does that make sense? He's still on the throne. Now, Jesus is on the throne. The reign of Christ is now. He does reign um, upon the earth and in, from heaven's throne. Where then is Satan? Well, Revelation 12, we talked about this, at the um, birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, which Revelation 12 condenses into one event from heaven's point of view, Satan is defeated and he falls. And he's no longer free to roam the heavens. He's fallen and is upon the earth. And um, we get verses like, so in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, um, Jesus has just been accused of, of working for Satan, right? He's driving out demons by Beelzebub. And Jesus says, well, that's not possible. Like, he says, if, if, if Satan goes against Satan, then his own house falls down, right? And Jesus says this in verse 29, he says, or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Well, in this thing that Jesus is talking about, the strong man is Satan. And Jesus is saying, I've come to plunder his house. But in order for me to do that, I've tied him up. He's bound. Does that make sense? Satan's bound. In Luke chapter 10, verse 18, let's just flick there. Jesus says, it says, he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. So again, there's that, what we talked about, Revelation 12, 13, where Satan has fallen because Jesus has the victory. Um, in John chapter 12, let's flick there. I've just got two more of these. Uh, John chapter 12, in verses 31, Jesus, where is it? Says, now, so 2,000 years ago when Jesus was speaking, now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the, prince, now the prince of this world will be driven out. So he's being driven from where he was somewhere else. He's being moved and driven out and bound. Um, a new boundary is being set for him. And then finally, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, uh, verse 15 says this. And having, so spot that, past tense, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, he, Jesus, made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. At the cross of Christ, Jesus was, um, not Jesus, uh, Satan was bound. He thought he was binding up Jesus, the Messiah. But in the actions of Jesus, Satan himself was bound and Satan was limited. So what does it mean to be bound? Well, Revelation um, 
tells us that Satan, when he's bound, he was thrown into the abyss. So let me just deal with that bit first. I mentioned this when I talked about Revelation 12 and 13. The abyss literally is the chaos waters. Okay, It links all the way back to Genesis, the, the, the darkness that existed before God formed all the earth. Okay, The chaos waters. Um, and that's the, the imagery and the language that's being used and the connection in the Greek and Hebrew words there. So waters, the chaos waters. And do you remember in Revelation 12, Satan was free to do whatever. Then there was this battle when Jesus was born, died, crucified, rose again, ascended into heaven. At the end of Revelation 12 and into Revelation 13, we discover that Satan no longer is free doing what he's doing. Satan is standing on the edge of the waters on the earth. The, the abyss, the edge of the waters. Does, are you with me? You're tracking that language? So he's, he's bound. Um, he's on the earth, but he's bound on the edge of his boundary, if that makes sense. And what is he specifically bound to do? Well, it says this in Revelation 20. Um, it says that he was locked uh, and a seal set over him to, what was he bound from? To keep him from deceiving the nations anymore. So up until that point, Satan had power to deceive nations, right? To, to deceive them so they didn't know the truth. But from the moment of the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the binding of Satan on the earth, um, he is not able to deceive the nations anymore. Is he still got authority? Yes, we see that in Revelation 13, that he's speaking and giving authority. He's giving authority to the beast who is on the earth, but Satan himself was bound. His authority was limited. So he still has the ability to do things on the earth, but he's bound in what he's able to do. And since he was been bound, he's no longer able to, to deceive the nations, which means that the, the truth of the gospel has been allowed to be told all over the world. And from the point of the ascension of Jesus and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, what do we see the story is? The rest of the New Testament acts all the way through. The gospel message, the truth went out to the nations and all the nations to the edge of the earth got to hear the gospel message and then the gospel went out. And that's what Jesus says will happen, right? That it will go from here in Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth and that's then what we see play, played out in the book of Acts um, are, you, are you with me on that does that make sense so for me when, when I read this this is a, an action replay of other events that we've already seen going on this is an action replay of the victory of Jesus on the cross and the ascension of Jesus and the fall of Satan who is now bound in the waters the abyss on the edge of the earth or the edge of the earthly realm so to speak does he still have authority? Does he still have power to do things? Yes, he does. But is Jesus on the throne? Yes, he is. And, and it's a little bit like how uh, a king can reign, but if there's an uprising in a certain area, that king will take his army and bring down that uprising until he's fully bought his kingdom in that land. And that's what we're living in right now, in that reign of Jesus that is bringing the final victory. Does that make sense? That's how I would view that. I'm going to stop there because... There's a whole load of other rabbit ones we could go down to that explain that, but that's how I would see the thousand-year reign of Christ, this period where Jesus is on heaven's throne um, and Satan is bound. The last question then, can we do this one really quickly? Yeah, yeah. all right, we'll see. It's me that takes ages, isn't it? Sorry about that. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3. So this links with Revelation and um, some of the Antichrist stuff. So it says, who is or was the man of lawlessness that's mentioned in 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 3? It was the Antichrist. 
Uh, well, he's good to um, exhort himself over everything. It's, it's, it's what we've explained tonight, really. He's the Antichrist. He's going to come. He's a lawless one, okay? Now, what I want to say, and what I just missed out, in, in, with the last question, I've got two copies of what's called the millennia, a millennia, pre-millennia, post-millennia, how people think, right? Now, if, I've got two copies. If somebody wants it, which I've, I've written out, I've got two copies. You can take it away and you can digest it, and you can decide what you want to understand from how um, three points of view come on a millennial, okay? If anybody wants any more copies, I'll, I'll copy it off for you. Okay. That was really quick. <laughs> All right. Oh, so I'm going to disagree, not quite as quickly as Den did, but I'll try and keep this as short as possible. It's one of my shorter answers, I think. Um, my problem's not my answer, my problem's the waffling once I get going, isn't it? Um, so, um, I don't think, um, I don't see a specific antichrist in scripture, so um, it doesn't get mentioned in Revelation. People would link um, verses about the beast and stuff like that to the antichrist, which they get primarily from passages like 2 Thessalonians. So. Um, and a couple of others which I want to share with you guys. So first up, let me just give you some context for 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians was probably written around about 50 AD, okay? So um, well, Jesus was crucified around 30-ish AD. We're talking about 20 years after the death of Jesus, okay? Around about that sort of time. Um, which also means that 2 Thessalonians was written before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, Okay, and this is going to link you back to one of my earlier answers. So before the destruction of the temple, and that's important because if we look at verses um, three and four, it says this. <clears throat> Do not let anyone deceive you in any way, for that day will not come until the rebellion occurs and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Revealed, The man doomed to destruction, he will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God, okay? So the man of lawlessness is gonna do something in the temple. Um, so again, for me, I'm, I'm thinking if this is written in AD 50, then Paul writing this is thinking about the literal temple in Jerusalem that still existed at that point. Are, are you with me? Um, so the man of lawlessness, I, I would say that in this, the man of lawlessness is Titus. He's the guy we talked about already earlier on. So um, the word lawlessness, literally in the Greek, it can mean sin, the man of sin. That's, that's what it means, okay? The man of lawlessness, the man of sin. And people, like Dan said, people connect this to the Antichrist from things like 1 John and 2 John and to the beast in Revelation 13. Um, and, and I wouldn't disconnect this man of lawlessness or man of sin from the beast because we've talked about the beast before and I've shared with you my take on the beast being, um, the, the Rome, being Rome, the Roman power and authority and Titus became a Roman emperor. Okay, so he became a beast. So yeah, that could connect. Uh, but if you look at 1 John, turn with me to 1 John. <coughs> 1 John chapter 4. Verse 3 says this. But every spirit, every spirit that does not acknowledge Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming and even now is already in the world. So here, 
when John talks about Antichrist, he doesn't talk about an individual person, but about a spirit of Antichrist that many people can have and can be. Then if you turn with me to uh, 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. So again, we're not looking at just one specific Antichrist, and there's nothing specifically to say that when he says the Antichrist, that's the same that's being referred to in Thessalonians, because we know that John's saying there are many Antichrists, many that set themselves up against the power of, uh, of the name of Jesus. And in 2 John, if you turn to 2 John, verse 7, John writes this. I say this because many, many deceivers who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So anyone that denies that Jesus came in the flesh is the deceiver and the antichrist. Does that make sense? So this isn't just a specific person coming at a specific point in history. This is talking about anti antichrist. Now, um, I would say then that the man of lawlessness mentioned in 2 Thessalonians is not just a specific the one and only antichrist, but he uh, is someone who sets himself up against God, so therefore could be called an antichrist. Does that make sense? Um, and I would again say, like I mentioned earlier on, that I think the man of lawlessness could very well be Titus, um, or if you want to go more general, then the Roman Empire, the beast. But the, anti, the antichrist is a spirit of denial in response to Jesus. Um, that anyone could have and that anyone could be. And I would say specifically Thessalonians when he's talking about a person that seems to be a person of lawlessness or sin who is against Jesus could be referring or be a prophecy referring to AD 70 and Titus because he says that this particular man of sin, this possible antichrist, is going to um, destroy the temple, right? Is going to set himself up in the temple, declare himself to be God, which again is exactly what Titus did in AD 70. And if 2 Thessalonians was written 20 years before that, then John, um, Paul, whoever's writing, is thinking about the literal temple that stands in Jerusalem um, and about someone who's going to come and set themselves up in it. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Great. So I would say... Yeah, these are multiple views. I'm going to stop waffling. Bless you, mate. Um, if you've got any questions, direct them to Den. <laughs> um, I don't know about you, but I, I love exploring this stuff. And I think the reason I love exploring it is because the more I press into it, the more I see of how amazing Jesus is. And that's what I, uh, I love about this stuff, that the more hope I have that Jesus does have the victory, that he does reign, that he is coming again, that he, he is going to restore heaven and earth. And that's where my hope is at. How it happens between now and then, well, there are two interpretations this evening, but there are multiple. And Den's mentioned already there's amillennial, premillennial, postmillennial, there's dispensational premillennialism, and there's all kinds of different viewpoints on all these different things. Yeah. <laughs> we, we, we don't know. These are our best guesses, and this is, this is Den, how Den views it and how I view it. But ultimately, both of us, and I think what we want for you guys to take away from that is that both of us, our hope is in Jesus. Um, and all of Revelation is about the revelation of who Jesus is, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he's going to do. Is, is that all right? Den, do you want to pray for us? I just want to say that um, 
this don't go one way between me and Matt and you, because when me and Matt look at this, we learn ourselves. So we're learning. We're not just dishing it out, as it were. Okay, we 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 learn as we go along and and pick it up. Okay. <clears throat> thanks, Lord, for this night, and um, I want to say thanks for getting through it. Okay. <laughs> I know you've been watching us, <laughs> and we've been good. So um, you know, thanks, thanks for tonight. Thanks for all of the people that you've sent along, Lord, because I know that you have the people here that you want to have and lord we just want to be around your word we want to open up your word we we want to learn more and we want your holy spirit to fill us so that we can proclaim your word uh to the world and so we thank you for tonight we thank you and bless your holy name and and and, and just praise you amen, amen. Boom. thank you guys